Perhaps some of you have seen that from the series Chosen, and uh, that's from episode 8. And um, I'm not sure if you've actually seen it or not, but if you have not yet, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it, it, uh, it really captures uh, or makes, I guess, the scriptures come to life that much more, uh, especially the personalities and the kind of the just the different, different factors uh, about people that we oftentimes miss in our reading and study of Scripture. And the particular scene that you just observed was uh, Jesus getting ready to head out with his disciples and, and other followers. And, and, uh, but the person behind the corner that was hiding and obviously in despair was Nicodemus. And you know the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man who met privately with Jesus before that time. And uh, if you watch this series, you see Nicodemus, different scenes of Nicodemus come up. And even prior at the beginning of this episode, his wife is saying, I love our life. I love our life. And yet you can tell Nicodemus is torn inside because although he is deeply entrenched in Judaism, he's also very curious very much drawn to this person called Jesus. And Jesus gives him an invitation to come and to follow. And instead of following, he gives a financial contribution. But in the end, as Jesus says, he came so close. Our passage this morning relates a very similar encounter with Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16, there's another man that comes to Jesus, very much attracted to Jesus, very much convinced that Jesus has something that he needs, but unfortunately only comes very close. Read along with me in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19, or listen. Someone came to Jesus with this question, teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the man asked. And Jesus replied, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself, I've obeyed all these commands, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? 
And Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits on his throne, his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. This morning I want to um, highlight six observations for you that I see in this text specifically in regards to this man that comes to Jesus. And after I highlight six observations, I want to identify three biblical truths. And you might be confused because when the slides come up, um, I originally had four and I made some changes last night. Sorry, tech team. And then I, may, then I will uh, draw two points of application at the conclusion of our message. And so six observations that we're going to jump in right now about this man so we can get a better grasp of uh, what's going on, what's at stake here. First of all, we see in this text that this man was rich. He was a man of great wealth. You know, from a Jewish perspective, uh, if you were to understand how they viewed wealth, the Jewish perspective upon wealth was basically this. If you were a wealthy person, if you, had, uh, if you were a person with a lot of possessions, then you were obviously blessed by God. Conversely, if you were a person with very little possessions, then it uh, was thought or at least concluded that you were not blessed as much by God. And so in the case of this rich man, everyone would conclude that he was good to go, Right? We would conclude that on the surface he had everything in place, both materially as well as spiritually. And this is why the disciples were even astonished when Jesus said what he did uh, in his exhortation to him. They were like, wait wait a second, if this man can't get in, then who can get in? I mean, if this guy who, does, who has it all together, so to speak, can't get in, then how is this even going to work out for us? After all... The guy's wealth was an indicator of God's blessing on him. A second observation that we can make from this text actually comes from the text, uh, the, the, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 18. We see that man, this man was not only rich, but he was also a ruler. Uh, he was a ruler most likely in a, a, probably in the synagogue context, and so uh, because he was a ruler in this context, no doubt he would be a person held in high esteem. He was a person who would be uh, regarded as devout, as influential, as someone who is honored in society. So not only is he rich, but he, he has great status in his culture, in his society. Third observation that we can make is that this rich ruler came to Jesus publicly. Now this is interesting, and this should be a, a detail that we should take notice in because for a religious leader who was maybe a ruler or had held a high position in the synagogue to come to Jesus publicly with a need was kind of a, he was stepping out. He was obviously, as I'll kind of get ahead of myself here, desperate for Jesus to do something for him. After all, as we saw in Nicodemus, Nicodemus, he was a man of high esteem, very much regarded in high esteem in Judaism, but uh, so he comes to Jesus privately at, at night so that no one will notice that his, 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 his comrades 
Other religious leaders won't know what he's up to. But this rich ruler, he comes directly to Jesus. His disciples are around him and he comes to him with a question. This brings us to our fourth observation. This rich ruler comes to Jesus publicly but with a genuine heart of sincerity. Really a heart of desperation. In other words, even though this man who would be regarded by everyone or thought of by everyone as someone who has it all together, right? Even though this man had all the wealth and the status and the success, he recognized that something was still missing in his life. Specifically, he did not have assurance that he actually had salvation. He wasn't fully convinced, even though on the surface everything was in place He was doing everything perfectly. He was a good religious person. He still felt unsure about his eternal life. He had no peace. He did not have rest. And he did not have assurance for his soul. So no doubt when he hears that Jesus is in his area, he takes full advantage of this opportunity, kind of like a Zacchaeus, right? Jesus is coming into town like, wait, what? I've heard about this man. Well, this guy comes, he's like, oh, I've been feeling distraught. I've been feeling this weight. I've been feeling this, this lack of peace in my life. And now I hear that this guy, Jesus, who, who proclaims this message, he's coming in my area. And so he runs after him and he doesn't even care that people see him. He doesn't even care that his religious uh, uh, associates see him He doesn't even care that disciples hear the kinds of questions he's about to ask. Now, a fifth observation that we can make from this text is this. This rich ruler who came to Jesus publicly believed that there was some additional deed that he needed to do in order to merit eternal life. This rich ruler thought there was something he must do. And again, the religious leaders believed that their strict adherence to the law was the ticket to salvation. It was the means by which they received God's acceptance in their life. In other words, they believed that their acceptance by God was dependent on their performance for God. It was all about what they were able to contribute And so this man comes up pretty convinced that he has done everything right, but still for some reason lacking peace. And he says, I have kept all these commands. I mean, Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say, I've obeyed all these commands. The young man replies, then what else must I do? I've done everything you're asking, Jesus. Then why do I still lack peace? Why do I still lack assurance for my soul? But his question, what must I do, reveals that even though he was convinced that he was doing everything right, he still was uncertain. He still knew something was missing. And a sixth and final observation we can make from this text is this. This rich ruler who came to Jesus publicly in desperation, walks away full of sorrow and without eternal life. Here's a man, almost kind of a a surge of excitement, a surge of hope. Like, oh, 
Jesus is here. I've been feeling distraught and under a weight and guilt and, and confused, and now I hear that Jesus is here, and no doubt he can answer my question. No one else can. I can't, but now I know. I bet he can. No doubt we might conclude this man is ready to receive Jesus, right? Ready to receive. All we got to do is lead him through the prayer. And yet he walks away full of sorrow. And he walks away without eternal life. How does this happen? If this guy was so desperate to receive eternal life, then why did he walk away without it? This brings us to our three biblical truths. The first of which is this. Biblical truth number one. People can express a genuine desire for eternal life but never receive it. People can genuinely desire the things of God, even eternal life. They want to go to heaven and yet still never receive it. As Jesus says, Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And the young man, when he heard this, walked away full of sorrow because he had many possessions. You see, the problem for this rich man was that he cared more about his possessions than he did his need for eternal life. I mean, he wanted both. He was a man of great wealth, a man of great status. He had a good life. He, he wanted to keep his good life. When you, re, when you watch that whole episode of episode eight in The Chosen, Nicodemus' wife even said this, I love our life. I don't want to get rid of it. I, I like what we have. I'm safe, I'm comfortable, it's good. Why would I give this up? And so this rich ruler comes and says, Jesus, what else do I lack? What good deed must I do? And Jesus obviously cuts to the heart and says, give it all away. The fact is, he leaves Jesus with great anticipation. Or he comes to Jesus with great anticipation, but he leaves full of sorrow. You know, much like this rich ruler, there are many people in our culture today, many people that you might even know yourself, that believe that there's a God, they believe in an afterlife, they believe in Jesus, they may even believe that Jesus died for their sins, that they are in fact even sinful, and they even want eternal life. But maybe they never receive this gift because they don't understand what it means to truly follow Jesus. They are unwilling to follow Jesus in total allegiance. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, good feelings alone in religion are not the grace of God. It's kind of a warning for us because sometimes we can have an experience, right? We can have an experience and then wonder, oh, then that must be real. And again, the emotion is real, but it does not necessarily mean the grace of God is upon you. You see, a person can have a genuine desire for salvation and still never receive it because the cares of this world matter more than forsaking all for the sake of Christ. You recall the parable in Matthew chapter 13, right? The parable of the sower, right? 
It's where four seeds are scattered on four different kinds, you know, seeds are scattered on four different kinds of soils. But one of the soils is thorny soil. And when seed falls on that soil, it obviously immediately grows up. But then as Matthew 13, 22 states, as for the seed among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. In other words, someone has a genuine desire. But there are stronger desires that outweigh this desire for the things of God. People can express a genuine desire for eternal life and yet still never receive it. The second biblical truth is this. No one can keep God's commands perfectly. None of us can keep God's commands perfectly. You see, this rich ruler believed that he was innocent before God based on the fact that he was convinced that he kept the commands of God. I'm, of course I'm right with God. I keep all his commands. I do all the right things. How could I not be right with God, right? And so Jesus gives a list of some of the commands and he's fully convinced that he's kept them all. But what he failed to understand was that no one has kept God's law perfectly. What he failed to understand was that no one can keep God's law perfectly. That everyone is guilty of violating God's law. This is what James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet fails at one point is guilty of all of it. This was was a point that Jesus was kind of uh, repeating over and again in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard it said, but I tell you, you understand the law in this way, but let me tell you what you think you're innocent of, I'm going to tell you that you're actually guilty of. You think you've kept the commands perfectly, or at least really well, and I'm going to tell you that you've actually violated every single one of them. The Ten Commandments weren't a thing going, oh, I can keep all that. You know, when I was younger, I thought I did actually keep the Ten Commandments. And then when I understood the Ten Commandments, I realized I've broken them all. You see, the point of the law is to show us that we are actually more unrighteous than we realize, that we are more guilty than we realize. And of course, as the Bible teaches, we are all sinful. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And what we deserve because of our sin, what we deserve because of our uh, inability to do the right thing perfectly is death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. You see, the law, the, the intent behind the law, at least in some sense, is to reveal how good God is. And of course, as a result, is to reveal how bad off we really are. It's to reveal our sinfulness. It's to reveal our inability to keep God's commands perfectly, which is the requirement, by the way. And therefore, it is also to convince us or to reveal that we need a Savior. That in and of ourselves, we are weak and we are unable to do what God expects. And therefore, we need someone to do it for us. That's why I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, he, for our sake, he made him. Now, who is it? He and the him. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Again, he was perfect, but he made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So even though we are weak and we, are, and we fail miserably, God says, I love you and I'm gonna give my son. The whole point of the law was to show the sinfulness of your sin, to show your inability to do what you needed to do and therefore to help you understand or come to this place of going, God, I can't. And he says, I know, but I can. And this brings us to our third biblical truth. There's nothing anyone can do to earn or merit God's salvation. The rich ruler believed that he merely lacked some additional uh, good deed in order to make them, him right before, before God. Uh, what, what else do I need to do? I think I've done everything, but I must be missing something because I don't have peace in my heart. But he was blind to the fact that actually he wasn't good enough, that no one is good enough. And this is why the disciples were astounded. They were astonished then who can be saved, they say, they ask. And Jesus says intently, humanly, nobody can. Nobody can save themselves. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, you can't save you. Only God can save you. And yet how common it is, how uh, prevalent it is for this idea to think that I can be right with God because I am a good person. I was just watching some Ray Comfort videos earlier on YouTube this week, and uh, Ray Comfort has kind of almost like a, he, does a, he has a kind of the same strategy all along, not that you have to really change it, but he interviews people in Southern California, usually in the Huntington Beach area, sometimes Long Beach, and where I, uh, Abby and I moved up from, and and he goes around just interviewing, just kind of like, on what basis would God let you into heaven? Just simple questions. And almost without fail, everybody says, if they believe in a God, they say, well, because I'm a good person. And then he's like, really? You're good enough? And they're like, yeah. I mean, I guess in comparison to some other people I know. And so they say, I'm a good person. He's like, okay. And he starts going down the list of Ten Commandments and explains the intent of the Ten Commandments and then he says, are you still good? And I guess, well, I guess I'm not. <laughs> I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. The whole point of the law is to show us the sinfulness of our sin, to show us how unable we are to keep God's commands, that we can't actually save ourselves, that God's, that God's acceptance of us isn't dependent on us, but it's dependent on God. So this whole idea that God accepts me for what, what I do or how good I am is really a lie from the pit of hell. God doesn't save you because of who you are or what you can do. As Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. No, God saves you and he saves me and he saves people for who he is and for what he has already done. Salvation is totally, completely a gift of mercy on God's part. I love Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So our salvation is fully an act and a gift of God's mercy. Or to state it another way, we could say salvation is totally and completely a gift of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that nobody can boast. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, what he brings to the table, what God offers us as a free gift is basically this. You are weak. You will fail. You cannot leave, keep the standard. You need me. So it's no coincidence that just a few verses prior to our text this morning, Jesus says this, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Or a chapter prior in Matthew 18, Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the question this rich ruler who thought he had everything right was asking, you know, what, what else must I do was the wrong question again. It's not what you can do. It's what God has already done. Our part to play in salvation is to repent. And to be willing to forsake all for the sake of Christ. You see, genuine faith and eternal life that follows is, has to be received much like a child who is fully dependent. And the child here is not just, uh, you know, even the four to eight year olds. It's talking about a toddler or infant. So the child in scripture is really a toddler infant, fully dependent on parent to really do everything for them. That's the context in which Jesus beckons us to come. Fully dependent on God to do everything for me. So what are you and I to reflect on? What are you and I to kind of walk away with? I think one of two points of application I'd like to share is this. The first being, wealth can become a false sense of security. Wealth can become a false sense of security. Now, let me just say this up front. Money is not, uh, is not sinful. Money is amoral. So money is not ever the issue. And, and even being rich is not sinful because oftentimes God will bless people so that they can be a conduit of God's blessing to other people. So it's not about money. It's not about being rich. That's not what we are to walk away from this text. No, even Paul says in 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19, he says, teach those who are rich in this world to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. That being said, however, Scripture has much warning in regards to money and possessions and wealth. For example, what Paul says just prior to that exhortation to the rich, he says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. You might recall the church in Laodicea, right? In Revelation chapter 3, 
again, the seven churches are highlighted there, and there's always something to encourage about the church, but there's also, uh, for most of the churches, there's a strong exhortation to, to repent of. For the church of Laodicea, we see in verse 17, it's like, yes, you are a church. Yes, God is at work in you, but he says in verse 17, this is Jesus speaking, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the church of Laodicea, it thought, yeah, we're doing good. We're wealthy, we're comfortable, we have no needs. We have everything we could want. And yet, as can so easily happen, wealth can become a false sense of security. We can think that I'm okay in life so long as I still have my stuff. I'm okay in life so long as my retirement account doesn't go below a certain level. I'm going to be doing okay so long as I still have my assets. But is that really true? Maybe the question or questions I'd like to leave you to reflect on further is this. What influence does your money and does your possessions have on you? And what do you find security? Maybe it's very relevant in the season of life that we're all in today, right? What do you find your security in, especially when everything seems to be uncertain and out of our control? What do you treasure most in life? Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now I find, just to give a qualification to this point, you might be thinking, well Aaron, I'm not rich, so this point of application does not apply to me. Yes, this applies to people with obvious visible wealth perhaps, but it applies to everyone actually. Because even those who don't have much financially or much in possessions can still fall victim to the same mindset. We still find security and hope and comfort in whatever we have. A hoarder finds security in their stuff. So I believe this application applies to us all. But I think a second point of application I'd like to, for us to reflect on further is this. We must understand that interest in the things of God does not mean submission to the things of God. Let me say that again. Interest in the things of God does not necessarily mean submission to the things of God. In other words, just because someone shows a genuine interest in God or a genuine interest in wanting to receive eternal life does not actually mean they're ready to receive it. It doesn't even mean they're willing to receive it. And sometimes we can get all giddy and excited. I mean, put yourself in the situation. What if someone were to kind of run up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? You'd be like, wow, this is kind of easy. I mean, sometimes you almost feel flabbergasted because you don't even know what to say in the moment. 
And you're like, this is kind of a slam dunk opportunity. This guy is asking me, or this lady's asking me, what can I do? And I'm like, all I gotta do, like, oh, I'll just lead him through a prayer. But as what Jesus does here, I think what Jesus does is somewhat instructive for us. Because Jesus doesn't get all giddy and excited going, this guy wants to receive salvation. No, he's going, let's see if this guy's actually, his heart is actually ready. You see, this rich man was genuine about his desire for eternal life, but he did not understand the cost. He cared more about temporary earthly things than he did the salvation he wanted so desperately. Much like the, the clip we saw at the beginning of the sermon, Nicodemus wanted it very bad, but he didn't want it enough. He wanted Jesus. He was attracted to Jesus, but not as much as what else he had in life. And he was so close. There are many people in life that are so close. And as a, as a way of warning, brothers and sisters, may we not give false assurance of people that might be so close and yet never actually saved. You see, it's not just about praying a prayer it's not about raising your hand. It's not about an experience necessarily. Now what we do, what we must do for the sake and out of love for that person is to kind of probe the heart as Jesus did. He probed the heart. He got to the heart of the matter and it revealed where this man truly was as if he was really, really that willing. And as we see, this man wasn't. He was not willing to follow Jesus. But maybe we could ask this question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to have assurance of our salvation? How do we know without a doubt, with absolute certainty, that our faith is assured and guaranteed? I believe one word encapsulates or captures what it means to follow Jesus and that word is surrender. To follow Jesus means to surrender to Jesus. It means to forsake everything for the sake of Christ. Even Peter acknowledges in verse 27, Peter says, we've given up everything to follow you. Recall from Matthew chapter 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And the point is this, the mindset of following Jesus, the mindset of surrender is this, all that I have is yours. Jesus, you have total Lordship and allegiance in my life. I'm not coming to you on my terms. I'm coming to you on your terms. I'm not coming to you going, Lord, I want this, but I also want that. I want my possessions, but I also want to follow you. I want to live life the way I see it and the way I think it's important, and also I want to have you. No, Jesus says, I want you to forsake everything to follow me. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus will say, to every single one of you, give away everything. 
Because the, the context here is Jesus is letting the man understand what's really in his heart. But no doubt, we all must be willing. God, everything I have is yours. All that I am is yours. The question in my mind is, that naturally comes as why in the world would anybody want to surrender in this way? Why in the world would anybody remotely acknowledge or consider surrendering to God in this way? Well, I think there's two reasons very quickly. One, that this is the only way to receive eternal life. This is the only way to follow Jesus. But secondly, by losing it all, you gain it all. By losing everything, you actually gain it all. Just as what Jesus says, everyone who has given up houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. In other words, by giving up what is temporary, you not only gain what is eternal, but your gain is actually a hundredfold. I mean, this is like the best version of compound interest there is out there, right? If you have any kind of retirement account, which by the way, that's a whole other conversation, but if you have any kind of retirement account, your retirement is kind of dependent on this thing called compound interest, right? And if money is in a certain place for a long enough period of time, all of a sudden it starts growing exponentially if it's in there long enough. Jesus says this. I mean, this is, uh, there's kind of a, an eternal compound interest here. He says, if you want to receive a hundredfold, give everything now, temporarily to gain everything a hundredfold eternally. I mean, you can't think of a better return for your contribution. But it does take having an eternal mindset in all that we do. It does, take a, it does require us to go, I'm not living for this life, I'm living for the next My security and hope and comfort and all that I am is not geared around this life. This life I forsake. Not, now please understand me, I'm not saying forsake it and just throw it up in the air and don't care about anything. That's not what I'm saying. But we are willing to forsake all for the sake of Christ. Jim Elliott says this, no doubt it's a familiar, but I think timely quote. Jim Elliot says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The question I would pose to you is this Have you come to Jesus in this way? Have you come to Jesus? like a little child, totally dependent on God to save you? Have you surrendered everything for the sake of Christ? I believe as this text so clearly communicates, unless we come to Jesus in this way, we cannot have assurance of our own salvation. It is only when we are willing to forsake all and surrender all that we can be that we can grow in our assurance based on the promises of God's word. But even feel like like many of you, 
I know that when I die, I will live.